So, uh, happy Easter. Happy Easter. Is it strange doing Easter egg hunts with your kids? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember doing this. It depends on the age. You don't really remember much before, in my case, the age of like eight or nine or something. Mm-hmm. With my kids, it's it's not one Easter egg hunt. It's like five over the course of two and a half days. <laughs> Just Sort of a three-day frat party, isn't it? It really can be, yeah. it's My little one doesn't care. He's one in three months. My seven-year-old loves it. She loves to unpack the eggs, get all the candy out, kind of look at it like it's a a chest of pirate booty that she's received from some sunken vessel. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, my candy. But she doesn't want to eat it. <laughs> she just wants to look at it, eat like one piece. And then she likes to repackage the eggs and then hand it to daddy and say, can you go put the Easter eggs back out there again? She likes the the discovery factor. She likes to try to figure out where I've hidden them. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't want to be the bunny. She wants to be the finder. What's your, uh, your best place to hide eggs? Just right in the grass. Right. You, you don't get clever and... Let's, let's speed this up, guys. So it's right there. It's right in front of you. Build a rock cairn <laughs> and hide them in there or something. Well, I live in Florida, too, so we have palm trees with those little, like, palm frond. Like, mm-hmm. you have to, when it, as it grows up, you cut the, the, the fronds off, so you get these, like, things that jut off the tree, like, a few inches. Perfect. You can stick, like, 15 eggs on it. <laughs> it's like, oh. It's a, nice. It's an Easter miracle. <laughs> my my kids are into the whole experience, so it, it's uh, you know it's kind of like the IMAX type thing. It, it, you got to go the whole the whole gamut. So they like hiding and finding. So they'll go out and hide the eggs and find them. In fact, they've done it when it's not even Easter. They'll just sort of find the box or the Easter stuff and like let's have an Easter egg hunt. Uh, it's October, guys. Yeah, yeah. And they start throwing them at each other or something. What's funny about kids is like there's always this fear with some parents is like you know let's say it's Easter at a church. You always hear the was it really about egg hunts and bunnies? Or should we just talk about, you know, the the, the atonement? And uh, I'm just like, guys, they're kids. Like, right. anything with candy, this is a Seinfeld bit, you know. <laughs> like, like this whole bit about, like, Halloween, he says, you know, like, I'll dress up however you want me to dress up. Just give me some candy. Right, like, I don't right. care. Like, yeah. you're, it's in an egg, fine. I'll go find it. But I just want the candy. And it, to be honest, it's hard to work candy in with the crucifixion. So let's just stick with the bunny because, you know, <laughs> I don't true. know where you're going to put the candy on the cross. Um, seems a little strange. Jesus likes Skittles. Yeah. <laughs> it's the, no, you're right. And it's, I actually had to do a video for a website, sort of a voiceover thing, about some of the stuff with eggs. And it's, it's actually funny. Every, everyone assumes it's related to pagan fertility stuff, mm-hmm. some sort of crossover in Europe. But the research is actually not very clear on that. It's kind of interesting. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, I mean, certainly there's a lot of that. And what's hard in history is sometimes there might be ancillary, like a prop, let's say, let's call it a prop, mm-hmm. an egg, mm-hmm. that is used in one way, in one context, then it gets moved to a different one, then it does take on some, like, fertility thing. But the problem early on, there's two two sort of wrinkles on it I found in the research. One, the reason the eggs would be hard-boiled is Lent. You, you would hard-boil the egg to save it for a couple of weeks. Hmm. I mean, you're a farmer. You don't just throw food away and go to Publix, mm-hmm. you know, the next day and buy it or whatever, or whatever grocery store you have in the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. Here it's Publix. Actually, Publix is coming here. It's coming to Charlotte and Winston, so it's, it's oh, yeah. invading up here. But here it's more Kroger. Kroger, okay, yeah, there you go. Kroger. Kroger. And, but they would hard-boil it, so that's one. That's one least riff. The other one is the painting of eggs. So in Greece and out in Asia Minor, they would paint them bright red. Mm-hmm. It wasn't related to fertility. It was related to the blood of Christ. And 
a lot of what we consider to be like egg painting sparkly stuff is i mean you have to have modern glue and adhesive and mm-hmm. like chemicals to make a lot of these colors so it's really a modern thing to dramatically always paint eggs i mean there's all these kits you buy in the store and stuff it's the same thing with halloween like we think halloween was like this long centuries old thing it's like really it's the candy industry guys it's like valentine's like a lot of the holidays like the traditions we think we wonder where they came from so many of Mm -hmm. them are either some history that's just been updated to now or it's not at all (laughs) based in history and it's like somebody in you know cadbury yeah and santa claus was invented by the department stores right i mean they kind of created this character and uh yeah and a friend of mine who's a Baptist pastor, we talk about how baby dedications in Baptist churches was kind of a, an idea that Baptists had, and this is us theorizing, that they went to their friends' other churches that had ba- had uh, infant baptisms, and they're like, we should do something for our kids. And yeah, of course, Baptists yeah. can't, don't typically baptize a baby, so then they developed this whole infant dedication yeah, service, which is a great service. I'm not putting it down, but no. but everything has an origin and, and a response, and it may have come out of kind of a response to something. No, you're right about the baptism piece. I mean, that would have been just not done with the early, say, 17th century Baptists. Mm-hmm. Maybe the way I, I would might put it is sometimes you form your identity by distinguishing what you're not. Yes. So 1700, uh, yeah, 1700s, at least 1600s, go back to the early days in London Baptists, you know, yeah, they're, they're not going to make it look at all like they're dedicating a baby hmm. because they're trying to say, look, we're not into this infant baptism thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at some point in the American context, there's the sense of, well, we're not anti-kids. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like we don't hate kids. We just have a different understanding of baptism. And, and we want to mark this this ritual, this life of passage of having a, a child and celebrating and family yeah. coming in and marking it religiously, which is a, a human need that religion meets. And and so, yeah, they, they develop the we're going to, offer up this baby to God, uh, mm-hmm. kind of like Hannah did with uh, Samuel. Well, and there's all the jokes that, you know, people that are infant Baptists make is, oh, that's just a dry baptism. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's really not. It's like, <laughs> the weird bit is, is the pastor presenting the baby and walking around. It's kind of cool, but also kind of weird. Like, if you've seen that, the pastor walks the aisle presenting. My pastor does it, yeah. It's kind of cool, but it's also weird because everyone's thinking, is he going to drop the baby? Is the baby going to yeah, throw up? Like, what's going to happen? It's, it's kind of like going to an ice hockey game. Are they going to have a fight? Are they going to fight? <laughs> One of my funnier stories is my older brother, Josh. They were joining an Anglican church and, of course, typically join or are baptized on Easter. That's At least this, if you're around Easter, they'll make you wait until Easter. Hmm. And it was some like, I'm going to get the story, at least the specifics wrong, but I think their youngest girl, they have two girls, set her dress on fire by the candles twice. <laughs> just, twice? Yeah, like, it, it, my brother tells the story great. He's just like, the second gas was, was more like, <laughs> what is wrong with these parents? The first one was pity, like, oh, no. You know, after that, it was like, seriously, guys. You know, it's kind of. So is she the older one that was standing there? Over... No, it was the younger one. It was the, it was the baby. Yeah, she was. I don't think she. She. They hadn't been baptized because they were from a Baptist background. Okay. So they were. I, I want to say, you know, like five and seven. So young enough to be dumb around fire. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> they're not ten when they're like, yeah, I don't want to do that. I saw Hunger Games. I don't want to do that. But it's not like mom held the baby over the candle by accident or something. Right, I mean, it wasn't right. that bad. Yeah. But they're to tell the stories like the second gas was <laughs> not as charitable towards us. <laughs> I'll have to get him to tell me that story. 
Yeah. So that's really funny. Yeah, Easter, uh, it, it, it's strange, these these passages of life, but remembering going on Easter egg hunts and then all of a sudden being the parent that's putting on the Easter egg hunt. Or I remember going to my grandparents' house, and, and at a certain point you realize, that's my parents to my kids. Those memories of going to my, the grandparents is is going to my parents who are not my grandparents. And you don't think of your parents as anywhere close to the age of your grandparents. Correct. You yeah, know, but, yeah. but that's... that. I remember, yeah, at one point, Grandma could chase us around. <laughs> <laughs> My memory of her is when she was quite old, you know. Uh-huh. So one thing we've talked about is defining theology. Yeah, what is it? It's kind of a big topic, and, and I wrestle with that in uh, teaching the class for the, our master students and undergraduate students. You know, what is this thing? Because and, and, it's one of those words that's vague, and people love to throw it in there, especially people in ministry or uh, with positions with the in the Methodist Church Board of Ordained Ministry and pastors will say, well, that's theological or we need to be theological. Mm-hmm. And my first thought is, well, what do you mean? You know, It's like Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof, like tradition, <laughs> tradition, like yeah, theology. Exactly. It uh, that's is. Just how it, yeah, that's how it feels sometimes. Yeah. It's either the gauntlet throwdown, you know, the apologia, not to be overly wordy about it, but like the apologetic side, the, the contention, which can be a good thing, you know, the kind of debate. Mm-hmm. The mark of any good theology is it has to wrestle with some stuff. You know, it has to be challenged and refined, etc. But usually, yeah, when we say well, we have to be more theological, yeah, I'm with you. Sometimes it's like, do you just mean not dumb? <laughs> is, that, is, that your, <laughs> right. is that your nice way of saying we're being stupid right now? Right. It's, I think that probably is. It probably is a shibboleth for saying, guys, you're idiots. Like, yeah. you need to actually think smarter about this. I'm going to be smug, and I'm going to use the word. I remember that with Bach, the composer. You know, for the longest time, everyone said Bach, and then all of a sudden, everyone had to say Bach and try to sound German, oh, which yeah. is, you know, a little hilarious to me because, well, we're not German, and we're never going to be native-speaking Germans, and plenty of words are anglicized you know it's yeah. venezia in italy but we say venice and that's okay like the venetians know that we would call it venice and and so having kind of an american version of his name just saying bach or or yeah. english speaking is okay and yeah the, the shibboleth idea of i'm going to be smug and i know how to really say it and oh you're not in the crowd because i have this theory that the mark of someone who thinks they're intellectual and deep but probably isn't, is someone who just goes around correcting pronunciation. Yes, yeah. My advisor at Cambridge, uh, Richard Rex, was phenomenally good at grammar, idioms, usage. He really helped me shape the writing and helped me learn, really, from the ground up again, the craft of it. And I was bad at, like, taking some idiom that was shared and then just trying to, like, be coy and Mm -hmm. twist it a little bit. And he'd be like, God, no, don't do that. (laughs) Like, You know, he's right. It just doesn't make any sense. You're trying to be clever. But the pronunciation thing, yeah, it drives me nuts because, one, I have the YouTube channel. At this point, I've just started to delete any comment where someone's like, OMG, you said mm-hmm. this word. And really, the diphthong is a long O. Students usually don't do this, but occasionally you hear like folks correcting, like, well, it's not Kierkegaard, it's Kierkegaard, mm-hmm. which is how the Dutch would say it. And my response always now is, well, you don't say Jean Calvin, you say John Calvin. Right. His name wasn't John. It was Jean. Exactly. Yeah. It was Martin Luda with a D, but we say Luther. Huh. I didn't know about the D. Yeah. Luda. Eventually, yeah, it gets a TH on it in the American world mm-hmm. or the English world, rather. Mm-hmm. But it is what it is. Pronunciation is very important. I'm not saying, you know, just, ah, who cares? Just pronounce it however you want in that sense. But 
what I mean is, I think sometimes lacking the critical faculties to sometimes say why you don't like something, yeah, it just resorts to, well, actually, it's not called the problem of evil, it's the odyssey. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, that's the same thing, Joker, let's talk about the thing, not the <laughs> right, word. Right. Like, you know. And I'm sensitive to that with students, that that I may gently correct their pronunciation, but I I, I try to, it should never be a barrier to, to talking about the topic. And and also, once you've read up on these things, you know that some words we don't know. I mean, is it yeah. Amos or Amos for the prophet? Because in UK, they say Amos. Well, we really don't know because it was a long time ago. And, and or Isaiah. Isaiah. You know, yeah, we don't have any wave files of recordings of how they pronounced it back then. We, we forgot how to translate Hebrew for a thousand years. And, and they're words we don't know what they mean or how to pronounce. And, yeah. and so... You Certainly know. the case in Greek. I mean, Koine Greek. I mean, there's the Erasmian pronunciation scheme, which most people now would say is wrong, but that's how they pronounced it for years. Mm-hmm. Latin has the same thing, by the way. Hmm. Most people, if they learn Latin, are taught Italian pronunciation of Latin because it, the popes for a long time were Italian, and mm-hmm. they would, you know, witty, witty, winchy. Mm-hmm. But it's it's vidi, vidi, vinci. It's, it's a hard V mm-hmm. in the traditional. So, But it got this kind of nice Italian flavor to it. And that's how we, you know, but the the thing that really helped me one time was a friend who's an Augustine scholar said, I, I asked him, I said, is it Augustine or Augustine? And thankfully he just goes, any scholar of Augustine will tell you it's either. It doesn't right. matter. It doesn't matter. It does. And, and we have in Florida near us, St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of oral tradition that what well, St. Augustine, the city, St. Augustine, the man, mm-hmm. but Here's a scholar, you know, doing his PhD on it. He's like, no one, there is no way no to determine this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's so important to get because, like you said, it's about the ideas and it's not about the pronunciation. We want to be correct if we can, and we want to correct mistakes, but it's not a big deal. And it, oh, yeah, and yeah. it's and it becomes a power play. It's sort of well, I'm in the club and you're not because I know how to. I know it's Bach, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you just say Bach, so you're obviously ignorant. Yeah, and, and that's just a, a shallow way of thinking. I have a thing where if it's like a student or even a colleague or something, or not a colleague or a professor, but that doesn't happen very much. I'm a junior colleague. I don't correct my, my seniors. <laughs> um, but like a staff member, let's say, if I hear something that's just like egregious, like they're just really saying it wrong, but they're saying a good point, mm-hmm. and the, the wrongness of it is maybe distracting, mm-hmm. I will sometimes go, hey, by the way, it's this. And usually that I can, I can recall a time when I said that wrong, too. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, no, someone had to tell me the first time. I always drop in like a like gratuitous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone had to tell me, too. It's, this is not um, obvious. It, you know, it looks like Barth. Yeah, you know, it, does. it does. And everyone said Barth until someone, unless you knew German, you're going to say Barth. It was doubly hard back in the day, not that long ago. But I mean, there's literally uh, some websites. I, I've, I've done this occasionally. French is not my strong suit particularly at pronunciation levels, I just never, I mean, I'm English ref. I don't, there's not a lot of French guys studying the English Reformation. Mm-hmm. So I know French reading, okay, not very well, but okay. But every time I have to pronounce a French word, you can just Google it. Like, how do you pronounce, like... It's amazing. The Mo Tapestry. It looks like Mauix Tapestry. I mean, Meox Tapestry. You know the Mo Tapestry? It's this great big medieval thing. Um, but it's pronounced Mo, and you're like, it doesn't look at all like right. that. But you can Google it now. Imagine back in the day, like, let's say it's the 1990s, 80s, uh, let's say pre-internet, 1980s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless you happen to come across an expert that says Bart, mm-hmm. you're going to spend your whole life saying Barth. Mm-hmm. There's, so there's probably opportunities with podcasts and other things to hear the pronunciations uh, differently. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, it's weird. It's it's a funny thing. But yeah, the the person who likes to go to the, oh, you, I can't believe you said that wrong. Like my favorite is you must be entirely ignorant of everything now because <laughs> it, it, uh, off the cuff, like in a live you know, mic take, you said it wrong. But it's like okay, that's fine. But okay, back to the question: What is theology? What would you say? Well, what I find useful, and and this is lots of people have said this. It's it's in Alistair McGrath's book, um, which is a standard textbook with theology. Is it's words about God, and mm. and that's a good way to unlock it because it's it's very open. And of course, there are different theologies, different religions with ideas and thoughts about God. But the interesting bit to me is actually the words because it it shows for Christians we have to use words. It's a literary language. It's a textual what? language. It's what? 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 <laughs> so uh, we're using words rooted in the Bible and the tradition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but words are so difficult. They're a bit mm-hmm. of a sand trap. Yeah. So it's almost like we have to play the game. Theology is like golf. You have to play the game, but you're going to end up in the rough and the sand traps. Yeah, Just sort yeah of, true. But by by uh, extension of actually playing the game. And so in theology... Everything's a compromise, which we've talked about before with yeah. all academic work and, and, and that everything is a bit of a compromise. And so in theology, it's a compromise too. And a classic example would be speaking of God as Father. Because mm. as Christians say that, we're, we're very careful to say that doesn't mean God is gendered. Sure, so yeah. God is not actually male, and yet when you say Father, it's hard not to imagine the maleness of God. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, that there's something of the fatherhood of God related to the son that's not about genitalia or some type of testosterone mass you know, something mm-hmm. you know, whatever is defined as male at any, any given moment whether yeah. it's being macho whether it's being sensitive it, different cultures have different ideas of the ideal male so this is actually a interesting point historically it was Schwarzenegger that started the trend of men getting bulky huh if you just look at any movie before Schwarzenegger they're all skinny they're all like 140 pound poindexters like you were supposed to be barney fife thin like it's just everyone is the size it no one had seen a guy like schwarzenegger and suddenly he's like big and i mean this is this kind of weird a naked terminator remember the yeah the kind of scene. california bodybuilding world suddenly it was like protein shakes and gyms and they they proliferated so now this this kind of macho muscular thing got tied up since hmm. at least in american culture but like that's what i mean when i say whatever just defined as male but yeah, so we think, okay, God is Father. That means he's he's like a boss. He's like a, he's mm-hmm. like a daddy. You know, you start adding these idioms or thoughts or things that might not be what is intended by the Father right. of God. It's Absolutely. not. It's not because the tradition is very clearly said God is spirit and God is God created male and female, and and so we can't ascribe maleness to God except for, in our language, we can't speak of relationships that are genderless. Sure. At least relationships yeah. of intimacy. So, you know, we could try to say, well, God is parent, but no one calls their parents parent. Oh, parent. Hello, parent. Hello, parent. Parental unit used to be the joke. Actually, yeah. when I was a kid, my parental units. So a term of affection is always gendered pretty much yeah. in language uh, or a term of intimacy and relationship. So then we're stuck with what do we call God? Can we call God mother? Can we, do mm. we call God father? And there's uh, compromises in both. Yeah, and I've always found that, well, can we also say mother? Initially, I, was, I first heard someone ask that question in seminary. And my first reaction was, isn't that just kind of flipping it? You know, because mm-hmm. you have equally gendered specific ideas as to what mother means. I mean, there's some cultures, particularly ancient cultures, where mother was 
a serious, like there's a matriarchal element to mm-hmm. it. Whereas, you know, maybe in the Victorian era, you I wouldn't say God is mother like that. Stay at home, you know, just be sexually available when the husband gets back kind of thing. Mm-hmm. No, that's not what we mean. But yeah, I, I remember one of the better articles I remember reading on this, this is like 10 years ago, was on the Abba father. Does Abba mean daddy? Mm-hmm. And it was a great article because they said, well, what depends on what you mean by daddy? And it was dead right. It said in a Deep South culture, a grown man in his 50s, if his dad is still alive, will call him daddy. Hmm. It's built into it respect, authority, and intimacy all as one word. Mm-hmm. Hey, daddy. Whereas in some cult, you know, some even American worlds, it's daddy, 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 mommy, mommy. And then as you get older, it's hey, dad, hey, mom. Like you, you, you almost transition to a different, more formal language. But it's not a sign of a lack of intimacy, they said in this article. It's a sign of you're maturing as the child. Hmm. And they said, so which is it, Abba? You know, is it daddy in the South sense or da- daddy in this other Interesting. sense? Interesting, yeah, yeah. They didn't have an answer, but they just said, this is why you have to be careful with Abba means daddy. Call call, call God daddy, you know, because mm-hmm. in some worlds, daddy is means you're acting like a baby. And so anyway, it, it, that, that was the first time I realized, like, yeah, that's, mm. there's all kinds of... It says more about the child than the parent, in a way. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, the human speech about God, that's what theology is. That's actually, two comments on that one, that's actually what theology means. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Theologia, it's a, it's a dialogue about God, it's speech about God. So the word means it to begin with, but etymology doesn't always help us. But just came across this recently. Uh, Augustine, that's what he calls it, in the city of God. Hmm. He says, theology is, he actually calls it a ser- sermon, a sermonum. But it's, it, it didn't mean sermon in the church sense, but it was it's a dialogue about God. A discourse, it's, yeah. It's a discourse. It's a, it's a, you know, a living reflection as to what you mean. And, you're gonna, and you mentioned the sand traps and the rough. Yeah, it... It implies you're going to say it wrong. You're going to you're going to fumble your words. You're going to mm-hmm. say things later. You go, eh, I'm not sure about that. That kind of thing. But there's this flipping back and forth that that happens mm-hmm. when you're talking about it being speech, or as I've seen some other folks lately say, theology is the grammar of the faith. It's you know one can be Christian, not no squat. You know mm-hmm. it could be first day on the job, so to speak. But like a child, they learn the grammar, they learn to speak, they develop. Yes. They, you know, they, they say pischetti, <laughs> metaphorically, right, right. Uh, and then they learn how to say it correctly, all that stuff. That, that's how theology yeah, works. Yeah, that's uh, McInt- Alistair McIntyre, and it's uh, Stanley Harawas, that we need to speak mm. Christian, and theologians are actually grammarians, trying to speak Christian well and have the subject-verb agreement, which it's, yeah. so it's a very interesting idea. It, it's something that precedes us that we're trying to speak correctly. But we don't just make it up. We, we, what we want to do is speak Christian well. So yeah, and an alternative to this is, well, why do we need the words at all? Maybe we could just get rid of the words, but then that wouldn't make sense because then Christians would just kind of not say anything. So it partly gets to how we're made, that we are a species that is verbal, that communicates, that uses words. And so it's, it's almost because of our human need for words and communication that theology is both wonderful and problematic. Because whenever we think we can describe God in words, well, God is obviously far beyond the English word father or the English word shepherd. So whatever yeah. God is, God is, you know, and this is, God is beyond all words. And we yeah. think we can trap God in a word, but we can't, which works great with the Exodus 3 in the name of God, that in there God's name is a verb that we don't even know how to translate. Yeah, totally. Well, one of the core principles I would say with theology when I'm teaching students is I say, 
there are some things you don't get to see the inside of. Hmm. You're you're talking about it in the phenomenon sense. Like, so I said, why do we say there's a trinity when there's no verse that says the trinity is thus? Mm-hmm. And I say very simply. There's one God, but he seems to be talking to himself. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. this is, it comes down to that basic principle. When Jesus prays and things, yeah. Yeah, talks. To, yeah, otherwise, that's a farce. You know, it's God talking to himself. Yeah, I use the example of Gollum. You know, is Jesus like Gollum and where he turns yeah. his face and talks yeah. to himself? No. Yeah, or, and I said incarnation. You don't get, however you're going to describe the incarnation, creedally, confessionally, you're going to try and think of some idiom in the 21st century that's going to help articulate this, you're not going to get to the inside root of this. We don't know what an incarnated experience feels like because mm-hmm. we're not God. You know, what, how, would, how would you? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're always, when you're describing something, you're not able to participate in directly. This is probably where that, that quote mystery word comes in. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, sure. the idea that mystery sometimes just means shut up, stop talking about it. But it just means at some point you're trying to describe an ocean, you know, kind mm-hmm. of a thing with a few words. It doesn't mean you don't do it. Everyone tries to do it. Everyone has a thought as to who Jesus is. Uh, everyone has a thought about uh, even people that could care less about the Trinity. Well, that's a thought about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it's a it's a considering it an irrelevancy is still thinking about it. And you know the, those things are part of the grammar of it. And what, what always is interesting to me is I think this idea that some tend to have that theology was always implicit. You know, you get these comments on threads and blogs and things I see every now and again where someone very generously tries to help folks understand a complex word or something. Like they try to describe it in a teaching way. And someone just goes, I don't know what you're talking about. I just love Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just do yeah. the, the complete dismissive troll on people. And I understand what they mean. They're, what they mean is, you know, you probably talked over my head. But there's this idea that faith for centuries is always implicit and it's this enlightenment thing that made it all about the words and the doctrines Mm -hmm. but it's interesting if you go to the middle ages you go to augustine they are actually very very perceptive it almost feels like they anticipate all the stuff we talk about now that words are hard to Mm -hmm. they don't they don't sum it up perfectly that even if and let's say you happen to have a sentence that perfectly describes god well very quickly the words you're using will morph in the language Mm -hmm. that you're using you know, English changes over time, that kind of thing. So I always point people back to the scriptures. Like, why do we keep retranslating the Bible seemingly every other year? Um, a new right. edition comes out. Why does the NIV keep updating? In some cases, it's that they had a, a new insight into like a Hebrew turn of a phrase or something. Mostly it's because our language is changing. So even if you can nail down a concrete word or set of words that, that perfectly describe a hard doctrine— well, those words could change. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're in now in Korea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now you got to translate. So theology is translation at some point. Yeah, you're trying to yeah, you're trying to describe it to folks. Yeah, yeah, and and so we try to find better words to describe things that can't be described by words. But we, I, I agree that we don't have a choice because we are uh, linguistic people. That because we communicate, um, you know, after nine eleven, we wanted the president to give us a speech. To talk, yeah, like, you yeah. know, he's not get up good and get up there and do a puppet show or or whatever. Like we want someone to talk to us. We want uh, people we care about to say, "I love you." Uh, you know, or if you remember the movie The King's Speech, the nation wanted to hear the king give a speech, except for he stuttered. Yeah. So, so words are so important and so powerful, and and so we can't have a church without words. But once we have yeah. words, we're in the world of compromise. So theology mm-hmm. is trying to compromise a well between. 
how do we speak about God as a shepherd and as Father, Son, Holy Spirit without being uh, paternalistic or patriarchal? Mm-hmm. No, that's right. Yeah, that's funny. I was thinking of George Bush doing a puppet show. <laughs> puppet or... show. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the idea that popped in my head was there's an episode of The Simpsons where uh, Principal Skinner is sick of Bart and he calls uh, Homer and Marge in. And the scene cuts in with him with one of those like cartoon blow up things. It's like <laughs> four feet tall. And if you hit it, it's a kid's toy. You hit it, it it'll it'll yeah, fall yeah, ground, but it's weighted. It's weighted so uh-huh. it'll pop back up. He's just going, <laughs> just punching the thing over and over again to like release the stress. It's like, yeah, we don't want a show action. Like, like we don't want our uh, president in an intense moment to get up, uh, essentially do theater. We right. want him to say something. Yeah. In fact, we usually don't want him to move, just sit there and say some words. Yeah. And yeah, one of the main criticisms of a president over the centuries is, well, he hasn't said anything about this in 36 hours. It's like, right. he's, the, he's the president, he's busy, yeah, right. sorry. Ver- yeah. Verbalize our fears and give us hope. Uh, Reagan's, um, you know, speaking to the people and the yeah. fireside chats of FDR. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, that also gets us in the problem of hypocrisy, that if I say one thing and do something else, then mm-hmm. my words become empty. So it can't just be words. We, we also have to demonstrate through action. And yet yeah, we, right. we can't just act without words. So it's, it's these speech acts that, that we are required to do. And yeah, so I think that's what theology is rooted in. And by saying it's human words about God, I don't mean that it, it isn't... Uh, divinely inspired at times or, or isn't, you know, really vital for Christian living. So ideas like yeah. the Trinity or the canon, I mean, these are not, I don't mean to reduce them to just human words, but oh, yeah, totally. But they are, um, they are rooted, I mean, they, inescapably, words are human. Yeah. There is no divine language, I would argue. Yeah. Right? So I would argue people, like with the early creeds, people always ask me, well, would you, do you affirm, do you think people have to affirm them? I'm like, well, what do you mean by affirm? Do you mean like slavishly say, I agree with every single mm-hmm. Greek word here, even if I don't know them? No, I'm not going to go there. But, I mean, the sense of like, oh, that was just a long time ago. Pfft, you know, who cares? That kind of dismissiveness of it. I, I always say, you know, doctrine always comes caked with history, mm-hmm. the dust of history on it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just comes with it. And you're, you're right about the words. It was interesting when you said, you know, it's not just images. The, the thought that popped in my head is, this is why we don't, even though we keep saying we're an image-based culture, we're, we're not. We are not an image-based culture. What has happened is image has risen up to a similar level as words mm-hmm. because we have more access. But we don't have a movie that has no words and yeah, just people exactly. pointing. Exactly. <laughs> it, the, the, words, it, the words are the basis of this. And what's, what's always compelling is how just like, you know, you ever see a movie scene or something where the couple is clearly stressed. And actually, this happened recently. Actually, it was a really, this is a good example. The movie Heat, of all things. Mm-hmm. I watched the first 30 minutes. Because if you go back and watch that first 30 minutes, it's the most, first of all, it's the fastest pace that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, unfolding of like, it feels like 19 characters all at once. Hmm. You, you have these like vignettes. It's Val Kilmer with that horrible long hair. <laughs> it's like, I guess that was sexy back in the day. But, um, you know. It's very interesting. So all these little vignettes. So you see um, Robert De Niro walking into a hospital stealing, uh, clearly stealing an ambulance. You see two scuzzy-looking guys. You see Val Kilmer, who looks like he has it all together, buying something. You're not sure what. You see Al Pacino waking up in the you know 
the, the morning with his wife and he's a good stepdad and there's this sort of deadbeat dad out there somewhere. What's interesting is then the heist happens, you know, that they ran that semi into the thing mm-hmm. and it's this whole like intense moment. They're wearing the hockey masks. And then what's interesting I noticed is they flip every single one of those relationships. So you saw all these scenes, like they weren't telling you, this is a loving couple. Mm-hmm. They're, they're awesome. It was just scenes, people kissing, good morning, uh, you want to make the coffee? Like the most minimal expression, but you, we were all interpreting like, mm-hmm. oh, I know exactly. This is a good family. That, that guy that stole the ambulance is a, is a horrible person. Hmm. Then the scene happens, the heist. Then I noticed every single scene after that flips every, almost every single one of those relationships. Hmm. You realize that Robert De Niro is deadly alone, pitiable, isolated, and he meets this girl in a bookstore, and then he starts to find love. Al Pacino starts yelling at his wife about chicken. <laughs> like, I'm sorry the chicken got burned. Like in that Pacino voice. Kind of awesome. Val Kilmer is a drug addict, and he like throws, like it's violent with his wife. So, it's very interesting. Like, the assumptions we have off of a first impression is usually the most dangerous thing, I think, for a student. Mm-hmm is they hear, let's say, two people argue about the Trinity. And they, they, they walk away going, well, the Trinitarian d- debate or discussion is always this that. It's whatever it was, whether it was good or bad. Mm-hmm. And they never allow themselves the opportunity to realize they've only had one exposure to a scene or to a grammar or to language. And you got to learn more. There's, there's, yeah. there's a deepening of it, a complexity in it that doesn't make it abstract in ivory tower. But it does mean that you that don't take your first impression. We don't do that for anything, so don't do it in theology yeah. either. Yeah, and it's going to take while of live uh, while of living with it. And and I tell students, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for a few years, and, and I'm not being dramatic. I mean, it's true. Like you mm-hmm. really do have to think about it and 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 enter a conversation. Uh, yeah. Uh, Doctor Seow at Princeton Seminary said that described the Bible that way as as kind of a holy conversation, and we're listening hmm. in. And you're kind of learning this conversation, the contours, and uh, that's a good point. I mean, look at Job or something. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 epitome of the book about suffering. We're just watching that dude's life. Watching going, that, yeah. Whoa, and we're balancing know. that with Proverbs, and we're balancing, mm-hmm. you know, and and this is another issue for us. And and when I teach, is is the strange diversity of Christianity that we have four gospels, not one. Yeah. So there, there's a there's an interesting diversity and and. Multiplicity. It's almost like a, a, a diamond with multiple facets. Mm-hmm. And so you can look at different sides, and they're different sides, but it's all the same diamond. And we're getting that with four gospels and various letters and, and mm-hmm. chronicles retelling the same story as first and second kings, um, you know, yeah. sort of a retelling. And, and so uh, we're always hearing these things retold in words. They're looking for precision. Yeah. In a sense that they can never get. And, and that's our job as theologians. Yeah. It's funny. I have to preach on the first 14 verses of Ephesians this week at my church. I, I, I'm the help my pastor out. He's he's exhausted after right. Easter. <laughs> so it's like, you know, bring in the bullpen. Yeah. And I love to do it because it gives him a break. But I have to kick off the Ephesians series. And one of the things that you were just saying is I think one of the problems that has happened in Protestant theology is we live in Paul. Hmm. And when you live in Paul decontextualized from the sweep of salvation history and the Old Testament and stuff, it does feel like he's just explaining everything in a simple way. The analogy I'm thinking about using, I'm about to see, is I would say Paul isn't sitting down and writing Encyclopedia Britannica 
Hmm. He's trying to describe a car accident after it's happened to people that weren't there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like he's trying this this magnificent moment, this this apocal moment, and he's saying this is what is changed. Mm-hmm. So there's times where almost, I mean, even the opening of Ephesians, most I think the entirety of the first chapter is one sentence. He doesn't break. Mm-hmm. It's like this kind of explosion of just just words mm-hmm. popping off the page. So it's not a cold reason Wittgenstein, no. you know, disquisition. I think I'm going to go with that analogy. He's describing a, a mass, like a, a plane crash, a car accident. He's been a part of it, and he's telling people who were not there what happened and why it's why it matters for them. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't mean that there isn't facts, data, substance. It just means you have to understand the genre. Right, right. Yeah, it's narrative. It's a story. Well, it makes it more interesting, I think, in that, in that way, because it feels like you're part of the story, not just simply downloading a schematic. Yes, yeah, and it keeps us always at a distance. It's a story of something that happened, so we're not the event that happened. Yeah, yeah, there's a bit yeah. of removal, and, and then it invites us to have our own stories and listen to other people's stories as they yeah. kind of put themselves as part of that story. So yeah. uh, one of the big turns in the past few decades is a reinvigoration of story as, mm. as you know, legitimate, academic, and, and existential living. Ralph Wood. Ralph Wood. Ding. Ding. Let's wrap it up. <laughs> All right, man.